Okay, well, today we'll, we're going to be again in Matthew 13, and we're going to finish up the section of kingdom parables uh, from Jesus. And I hope this has been an interesting study for all of us, and I hope it's given us some insight and some encouragement about the way God works or the fact that God is at work. A little bit of review. Uh, parables, again, were given really with a twofold purpose. Jesus said that they were given to both reveal and conceal truth about the kingdom. And that wasn't new with the parables. If you remember in Matthew 11, he spoke about the same thing. He, he prayed to the Father and said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but have revealed them to babes. So we understand that it is God's work at times in his grace to both hide and reveal things. And the parables did just that. They concealed these hard truths from those with closed eyes or hard hearts and a decided rejection of Jesus. But to the disciples and those who were following, they revealed some wonderful things, some things that I hope we've been able to see as well. In the parable of the sower where we started, we learned that the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God is the word of God being sown, taking root, and producing fruit in the hearts of men and women. And maybe the interesting thing about that parable was the explanation of the different kinds of soils or the different kinds of hearts, the hard heart, the shallow heart, the strangled heart, and the soft heart. And we learned that we need soft, fertile ground in our hearts to receive the word of God gladly and produce the fruit that remains. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or wheat and tares, we learn that we live now in a mingled world, a mingled kingdom. And that is true in two ways. It's true in the fact that the kingdom is mingled and that we live and exist among many people who do not believe. But it's also true in that there are true and false disciples. And that parable gave a little bit of warning and a little bit of insight into that. In the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, we learned that the kingdom, though it may have started with small and relatively insignificant beginnings, hardly recognizable as a kingdom at all, yet it has grown to considerable size. There are kingdom citizens all around the globe. And while much work is left to do in the spread of the kingdom and the message of it, still there is great hope because in that parable, really Jesus promises that his kingdom will thrive and be victorious. In the parables of the pearl and the treasure, we learn that following Jesus in this world, in this kingdom, is worth giving up to everything for. We learn that taking the long view of the kingdom is prudent. And even at times, becoming very poor in one sense is worth it to become very rich in another sense. It's an investment that produces returns beyond imagine, not only in the future, but also in our experience now of Christ's presence, of his joy and his peace and his righteousness. So with that review then, this morning we come to the final two parables in this chapter. One really repeats an idea, uh, an emphasis that we saw in the wheat and the tares. The first parable that we're gonna look at today is called the parable of the dragnet. And it refers to the judgment at the end of the age. And then the final one, which we'll see in verses 51 and 52, is 
probably the shortest one in this section, but it compares well-trained disciples to scribes in the kingdom, and it calls them the keepers of the treasure of the kingdom. And right in the middle of these two, Jesus asks a question, and I really want to begin here before we jump into the rest of the text. If you look at verse number 51 in Matthew 13, Jesus asks the listeners this question. He says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And that really is the operative question for soon enough, these followers would be in the world apart from their Lord. They would be walking in it, living in it, and it would be them who would be carrying on the teaching and the proclamation of this kingdom message. But even beyond that, Jesus wants his followers to understand his teaching, to know the meaning, and to apply it. For centuries, as we read the record of Scripture, God had been dealing with cycles of stubbornness, closed-mindedness, and stiff-necked people. For instance, in the time of the judges, the people disregarded the law of God so much so that it, the testimony in Judges 17 was that in, their, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the time of the exile, the people were stubborn and closed-minded to God's prophets. And Jesus even quoted in these parables from Isaiah 6. We read this. He said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not, do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And now in Jesus' own day, he was dealing with a generation of Israelites. And particularly as we've seen the, the teachers and the lawyers who were self-righteous and stubborn in the sense that they completely missed the coming of their own Messiah. Now today still, the Lord calls us to have soft hearts, to understand, and to listen. My mind went as I thought about this question, do you understand these things, to Hebrews 3, where the author of Hebrews calls to his brothers and says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And that is a call for us as well, brothers and sisters. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear the voice of Jesus in his teachings? Do you hear the kingdom message in his words? I pray that you do, that we all do, and that we listen, understand, and follow. And this is especially prudent in these final two parables because they really reveal a contrast that exposes the grave reality of ignoring Jesus and his teachings but they contrast that with the beauty and the goodness of embracing them. So today we see this. The warning concerning the end of the age is a clear 
and potent warning, which makes the treasure of the kingdom all much more valuable. We'll see that in these final two parables. But first, before we jump in, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study. Lord Jesus, thank you so much again for your teachings. Thank you for sharing them with that original audience in your day, but then also keeping them for us today so that we can in the same way be hearers of them. And so we can ponder that same question. Do we understand these things? And we want to understand them. At least I hope that we all want to understand and see your truth. Oh Lord, would you give us soft hearts, even in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you apply these truths to our lives in a way that we can live them out? That we can produce the fruit that comes from you. That you would sanctify us by this truth as you've promised to do. That we would share these truths with others. And that we would, as the author of Hebrews told us, hold fast in this confidence until the end. Teach us now, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, first let's pick up in verse number 47. And we'll see first this parable of the net. Parable of the net. He says in verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We could start this learning by asking if there are any fishermen uh, in the congregation today. I know at least a few of you enjoy fishing and uh, I've heard some of your fish stories and uh, maybe they are just that, fish stories. I don't know, I wasn't there, but um, I don't know anybody here though who is a professional fisherman. Uh, Those of us who fish for fun, maybe just something to eat or maybe we go hungry when we fish. Uh, We usually fish in a certain way that it's called angling, right? Uh, the little hook on the end of the uh, the end of the fishing line was originally referred to as an angle. So fishing with a rod and a hook, uh, that's that's what we typically do. We put bait on the end of it and we catch one fish at a time, maybe sometimes, and uh, only if the the deceptive power of good luck is on your side. Um, I don't believe in luck, but if I did, I don't have any when it comes to fishing. Um, but today, if you want to get set up to go fishing and you've never fished before or it's been a long time, you don't have any gear, you may go down to the sporting goods store and you speak to the guy in the fishing section and he will gladly set you up. Um, He might ask you what kind of fish you wanna fish for. He might give you recommendations of of products that you need and and where to go. And he might even guarantee you success if you just buy the right things. And that might tickle your fancy. And after you pick out a $100 rod and a $50 reel and a $30 tackle box and another $100 of lures and bait, and you buy your fishing license and maybe a new pair of shoes to go with it, and you spent four or $500 on this fishing gear, and then you go out fishing, and if you're lucky, you might catch enough meat to equal two or $3 worth of a meal. But the enjoyment will be worth all the investment. 
Of course, that kind of cost versus benefit would have seemed silly to the fishermen in Jesus' day. And uh, they did have rods and hooks. They used those occasionally and for certain kinds of fish. But typically, fishing was done with nets. And uh, there were two kinds of nets, really. There were smaller nets that could be handled by a single person, cast in, and could be pulled up by one person. But then there were these other nets that were called scenes. And it was a net that you would stretch between two boats. Usually it would be anchored to the shore as well. And the two boats would drag it out in the same direction, and then you would drag it back. And it would pull everything within its reach into a one single place. And then the net would be dragged up onto shore or on the boat if it was a smaller one. And then the tedious process of sorting would begin. And these fishermen were fishing for their living. And only certain fish were desirable for food. So the good species, a kind of fish that they called mushed, it was like five different kinds of basically tilapia. Those were the money fish. And they were kept and sold. They had a lot of meat, not a lot of bones. And the bad fish were either thrown back or if they had died, they were just tossed away, maybe used as fertilizer or something. And this process is what Jesus was describing in this parable. And his audience would have known it well. They would have seen it. Some of them did it for a living, at least four of them. They would have had no, understand, uh, no problem understanding the idea and the circumstances within it. And that process of gathering, sorting, and separating the fish is what Jesus likens to the kingdom at the end of the age. Now, of all the parables, perhaps this is the most sobering one because it is a parable of judgment. And this concept is repeated, as I mentioned, from the parable of the wheat and the tares. We read at the at Jesus' explanation in verse 40 and following, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus had explained this principle of separating and judgment once within the same teaching session, and for him to do it again, for him to repeat this very direct message, this exact idea, tells us something of its importance in nature and the clarity in which he wants his hearers to have. It's no wonder he asks after this parable, have you understood all these things? He wants them to get it. He wants us to get it. During our present age, our experience right now, this was sometimes known as the age of the church, this age of grace, this age of the kingdom spreading and growing. As we've already seen, God allows in the world a mixture of belief and unbelief, of righteousness and unrighteousness. He allows that coexistence, that mingling, that intertwined reality. And just as the fish being pulled within the net, they may have no concept that they were even in the net to begin with, some of those nets, these scenes, uh, these drag nets, I read that they covered as much as a half a square mile. That's enormous. And it wouldn't be until they were pulled together 
that the unsuspecting fish would realize their plight. And so it is. We can get a picture of that sense in our day that men and women walk about in the earth as if they were free and as if there was nothing to be accountable to, nothing to fear, no consequence. Yet that is simply not the case. God's kingdom is a net, so to speak, that extends throughout the entire earth. We read in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it, the world and everyone who dwells in it. Every person is within the scope of God's kingdom authority. Now, not every person is a citizen of that kingdom, but every person is subject to the rule of the king to the Lord himself. There may have been a period in your life where you could testify to the idea that you've had this attitude where we live as carefree and and jovial. We conduct our lives as if whatever success and joy we can achieve in the moment is the pinnacle. Yet this sobering reminder from Jesus tells tells us that that is not the case. We see the sorting. Like the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus speaks of the angels as God's workers of separation. Now, in this place, in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly when and how that will happen. That's not our purpose for this time. If you want to hear more about that, come hear Matt teach in Revelation for the next, I don't know, 21 weeks or so. No. Just joking. But yeah, come. I, that's a plug. Come to Sunday school. We just started Revelation this morning. It's going to be a great study. But this parable doesn't give us an exact theology of the end times, but it does give the big picture. And what is clear is that in the separation, there is something to be dreaded and feared for the unrighteous. In both cases, both in the parable of the wheat and tares, and this parable of the net. Jesus speaks of this judgment as a fiery judgment. It's been said, and it's really true, that Jesus speaks more often of this kind of fiery judgment, of the judgment of hell, so to speak, than he does of heaven or even of love. And that's true because a major part of Jesus' ministry was the warning aspect of it. If all the signs of warning in the scriptures up until Jesus were not enough, then the Son of Man, the Lord of heaven, the God of the universe, stands before his people and tells them, you need to know this. And he tells us as well, you need to know this. The implications of following Jesus or not are more than just having a more successful life now. Now, as we've learned all throughout Matthew so far, there are very practical and right now implications of following Jesus. That's a major part of it. But there are also implications that extend to use Jesus' language from this age to the age to come. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus had already warned about this kind of separation. If you remember Matthew 7, verse 21 and following, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A time of separation will come, and it's not only the Hitlers and the Stalins and the mass murderers who face the judgment. Remember that even the Pharisees, the the devout religious elite and keepers of the law to the letter were not counted as righteous by Jesus. No, dear one, we must come to see Jesus, to submit to his lordship, to call upon his name, to receive the righteousness that only he can give, to come to him again, as we started out in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit and empty and hungry, knowing that only in him we can be filled. Dennis read earlier in the service from Revelation 20 and 21, and those the end of 20 and beginning of 21 give another contrast of both the great white throne judgment and also the new creation, the new heaven and earth. We saw the contrast of judgment, but the wiping away of tears and a new existence for others. It's the same idea we see in this passage. It's a common deception when people speak of the judgment as a time where they'll simply be gathered with their buddies and carrying on an existence separated from all those stodgy religious people. But Jesus' imagery here gives a different picture because he says in verse 50, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gritting of teeth, that's vivid. It doesn't need any explanation. It doesn't need any clarification about whether or not this will be an enjoyable existence. Dear ones, this warning is stern and clear, but I want you to know that it is compassionate on the part of Jesus as well. He gives this warning, but he also gives the other side. He's been giving the other side the whole time. It's not as if he's saying, this is the only option. This is it. Enjoy it now because this is all you have. No, he gives this in contrast with the goodness of the kingdom, with the joy and the peace of it in order that we might listen. And as we saw in the wheat and the tares, the fact that we live now in a world that is mixed, where righteousness and unrighteousness are mingled, that's a sign of God's patience. He allows it for now until the appointed day. And now his willingness, First Peter tells us, is that men would come to him. So today, as we read in Hebrews, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not ignore him. Do not presume upon that patience. The same righteous king who is judge of all the earth is also a gracious and patient shepherd who warns and calls sheep to himself. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We move then to the last parable in this chapter, and that is the parable of the householder or the parable of new and old treasures. Look at verse 51 and 52. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. 
And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus is ending his teachings here. The very next verse that Matt will cover next week as he preaches, uh, it moves on to a new section in Matthew. And he, by way of conclusion and application, again, he asks that operative question, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Now, as we read on in Matthew, we, we might find, we will find that the disciples' understanding was not always as clear or as perfect as they indicated it was right now. But Jesus takes their answer right now, and he accepted it. They, they did understand to a point. They did get the big ideas. And we should be glad, too, that Jesus is gracious with us as we seek to follow and understand the scriptures. None of us has ever arrived. Uh, those who have been believers for, for 50, 60, 70 years will tell you that they are still learning and gleaning new treasures from the word of God. Uh, yesterday, some of you were present. There was a we had a memorial service for Marion Turner uh, over at Aldous Funeral Home, and I was privileged during the week this past week to be able to borrow her personal Bible and look through it and to see all the markings and the things she had jotted down. And it was it was a wonderful experience, a way to get to know her, so to speak, even though I didn't know her very well in person. And uh, what was interesting about it is that the Bible she was reading was not very old, maybe five or six years old, but it was pretty worn out. And every page in that Bible basically had a mark or a note or some indication that she had been there before. And uh, that just goes to show that you're never too old to glean treasure from God's word and his scripture. You've never been a citizen of the kingdom long enough so that you finally have everything down. So as we see the disciples sort of faltering in their understanding in chapters to come, we ought to be gracious to them because we do the same thing each day and it's a joy to continue learning. But based on their answer, they said, yes, we do understand. Then he gives them this, therefore, he says in verse 52. So based on their answer, he says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, scribes, as we know, were an official category in Israelite life. They were the teachers of the law, the, the grammatons is the word in Greek. They were responsible for recording and knowing and being able to bring up references to the law and its interpretations. They were the experts, so to speak, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, and also the traditions. But Jesus says, based on his disciples' understanding, and none of them were scribes, they were all just regular guys, fishermen, tradesmen, that they are like scribes who are trained for the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't see the idea anywhere else of this new kind of scribe, so it's not that this is an official office in the kingdom. Rather, Jesus is simply saying that the ones who have been taught and trained are like the scribes in that they have that responsibility to bring out of their treasure those things that they hold. The teaching and the learning and the training that is in context here is the training of Jesus, discipleship with him. 
So those disciples who follow and learn from Jesus were like kingdom scribes, a keeper of the truth of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, this probably was in a bit of a contrast to the official scribes for those scribes were not just well-versed in the scriptures, but they also were well-versed in the man-made traditions that were mingled in their teachings. And because of that, we've seen several cases where Jesus has pointed out that they missed the point of the Old Testament because of their traditions. But those who follow Jesus and are trained are like scribes for the kingdom. Their teacher is the Lord himself. And that is true. I may stand before you, Matt may stand before you, Dennis at other times, guest speaker may stand before you and, and teach and explain the scripture. But truly, when we hear the word of God, I am not your teacher. The Lord is our teacher. At least that should be how it is. And in the kingdom, those who are well-trained are like, he says, the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus pictures them as a householder, a housemaster who has things stored in his treasure. The kingdom truth is a treasure. We've already seen that in the parable of the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure. It's a treasure that is stored you could say, in the heart of the disciples, of these learners. And that's an interesting picture. Think of it this way. The person who holds the treasure didn't make the treasure. They didn't buy the treasure. It's an inherited treasure. And also, he says, there's new treasure and old treasure. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think it ties in well with what Jesus said back in the middle of this chapter, in verse 34. Excuse me, this is actually Matthew's comment about Jesus' words. In verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And you remember he quotes from the psalmist Asaph, who said, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The new and the old, the new and the old. We have said all along that the coming of Jesus was a new thing. This was it. The Messiah was here. The kingdom was here. The fulfillment was here. But it was not new in that it was a replacement of the old, and it was not new in that it was unexpected, at least from God's perspective. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't think that I have come to do away with the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you remember when we studied that, that term, the law and the prophets, was not merely talking about some of the scripture, but it was a euphemism for the whole of the scriptures at the time. So you could say from Genesis to Malachi, books of history, books of poetry, books of prophecy, they had their aim and their focus in pointing to the greater thing to come, the greater one to come, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. So the treasure of the kingdom for the well-trained disciple of Jesus is both new and old. Certainly with Jesus did come new revelation, new insight, new teaching. 
And with the apostles, the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of the rest of the books that became the New Testament. But be clear, these new and old are not in contradiction. They're not in opposition. They don't give different pictures of God and his work. They are a unified whole that that speak together. Really, the scriptures are, are a body of teaching. Hebrews says the word of God is, is alive. It's a living organism, organism, not living in that it changes, but living in that the life blood of God's truth courses through the entirety of it. It's been popular at various times in history and including some places right now to sort of take a view that the Old Testament speaks of, of God in one sense, but the New Testament gives us the new and improved version in Jesus. That's a character of of scripture, but it's not the case. The Jesus of Matthew is the promised Messiah that we read about in Daniel and Isaiah and Micah. He's the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. God has not changed, nor has his plan changed, nor have his ways changed. So brother and sister, Take up both new and old. Don't despise one for the other. Take them up, and as this says here, bring them out. Take up the story of creation in Genesis, learning how God is the beginning of all things. Take up the story of the Exodus, how God delivers his people. Take up the giving of the law, how God has clear intentions for every detail of life, intentions of justice and righteousness. Take up the stories in the books of history, how God didn't despise or destroy his people, even though they strayed from him often. Take up the Psalms and see the full range of human emotion placed within the backdrop of God's goodness and beauty. Take up the Proverbs and see the wisdom that far surpasses every treasure of human understanding. Take up the prophets and see the coming of the Messiah the work of Jesus before it ever even happened. See how God is a righteous judge, but also has a plan that extends through the ages. Take up the gospels as we've been doing and see Jesus, his life, his person, his work, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his miracles. Take up the writings of Paul and see how God used one of the hard-hearted Pharisees to hand down almost half the books of the New Testament. And the theology that shapes our understanding of God even now. Take up the writings of Peter and see how the disciple that wavered so much went on to encourage his brothers, calling them to follow Christ. Take up the writings of James and Jude and see how Jesus' half-brothers who didn't even believe in him when he was on the earth went on to be well-trained scribes for the kingdom. Take up the writings of John and his book of Revelation and see how the Lord's plan extends through all the ages and culminates in the total victory of the kingdom, of new creation, of the eradication of sin, of suffering, of sadness. See how Jesus is the beginning and the end. And he is making all things new. 
Brothers and sisters, take up these things. These are the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. And like this householder, don't just treasure them, but bring them out. Display them, share them, proclaim them for yourself, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Show them off. These are God's treasures. Don't despise the old for the new or the new for the old. See within everything the way that God is working, planning. See the master plan of redemption with its central focus in the person of Jesus Christ. See his kingdom, his teachings, his warnings. See the value of it. Treasure it and follow him. Lord, thank you for these parables. Thank you, Lord, for fulfilling the old and bringing the new and showing us how the old accompanies the new, how the new explains the old, how they work together, how they are a part of your master plan, your revelation. May we treasure the words of your kingdom, the teachings of your kingdom. That's the only That's the only source we have for life within this kingdom now. And as the Holy Spirit dwells within us and applies these things to us, may we have the soft hearts that are needed to produce that fruit. May we also, Lord Jesus, see your warnings here and know that they are given, yes, in justice, and there is holy wrath, but there is also great compassion. And today, if we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts, but may we listen. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.